Welcome to the Causeway Living Podcast with your host, the one, the only, Scott Riley. Woo, yeah, Welcome everybody to Causeway Living Podcast, episode number one. And for this premiere episode, I really wanted to push the boat out with a big studio audience and an American blockbuster style introduction, but gonna level with you here. That live audience, that was just my voice. And the American announcer, just me putting on an accent. So humble beginnings here, but <laughs> maybe by episode 100, we'll have that real big studio audience to celebrate and the big blockbuster style introduction. For now, humble beginnings. But that's cool, you get to be in on the ground floor of this. You get to be the OG listener and get those hipster bragging rights when the Causeway Living podcast really blows up and becomes popular. You'll get to be one of those annoying people that says, I was listening to that before it was cool. <laughs> and I already have some experience of this with my Dash and Splash group about four years ago now. I started this running and sea swimming group along the coast here in Northern Ireland. And this was in a time before sea swimming was the popular thing that it is now around the UK and Ireland. And uh, now everyone and their Aunt Jemima are getting into the sea for a dip most days. Back then, if you were a sea swimmer, you were hardcore. <laughs> you, just, you like to tell your friends about it as well. You were going into the sea in the middle of winter? No way, how do you do that? Well, you know, I'm just made of different stuff. <laughs> no, not so much. Whatever, it's, uh, yeah, pretty much most people have been in the sea at some stage here and realized like, oh, this is actually doable. And this is actually really good for me. And it's really taken off. So. I have no qualms about uh, losing the cool status of, of going into the sea in the middle of winter. It's very, very, very encouraging to see so many people getting active outdoors together, which is really what Causeway Living is all about. And I'm going to use this first episode of the Causeway Living podcast to go into that in more detail. What is Causeway Living? And to give you a more complete story of that, I want to give you the story of who is Scott Riley. Some of you listening, probably most of you listening, will have some idea of who Scott Riley is. <laughs> and what I would invite you to do at this stage is one of two things. If you have an idea of me in your head now as this nice guy who is clean cut and you know, not gonna say anything offensive or controversial or challenging and you wanna maintain this nice little picture you've got of me in your head, just switch off the podcast at this stage. There's going to be language in here you're probably not gonna appreciate. I'm gonna talk about subjects in here that are probably taboo and I'm gonna give opinions that are probably not very popular. But an important part of this podcast for me is authentic self-expression and we're going to get into that a little bit very shortly but if you are open to seeing a more complete picture of me <laughs> stay tuned and I greatly appreciate that because truth be told it's not the easiest thing in the world <laughs> to, uh, to step into your authentic self-expression and be okay with the fact that some people are going to reject that but the people who accept that, well, it like creates this more deep, real bond. And that's one of, one of the things that I want to achieve through this podcast, like to get even deeper into myself and make those more real connections with the other people that whatever I've got to share on here, that really resonates with them. And the subject of like authentic expression is a perfect starting point for my personal story going back all the way to childhood really i'm gonna tell my story in a way that i don't often get to that's my podcast now so <laughs> i can do whatever i want really <laughs> normally whenever i'm explaining a little bit of my personal background i go to a point which is now just over seven years ago to what i consider really like the rock bottom point in my life 
I was very sick, I had rheumatoid arthritis, I was a good 100 pounds heavier than I am now, which is about seven stone or 45 kilograms, something around that. And my mental health was in a place where I just didn't want to wake up the next day. And it makes for a good starting point of the story because you can take people on this journey of like, oh wow, this this guy who's like, really overweight and unwell and tired of life and now I look at him he's healthy and fit and leads these people out into nature to do cool things and get them to improve their life circumstances as well and it's this nice little complete story that <laughs> that I created over uh, over the years and the truth is it's far more complex than that so that's what I want to take a bit of time to do today, get into the complexity of that and share even more authentically all the way up to the present moment and starting this podcast. So if you're in for the journey, if you're going to set your judgment to one side for me, <laughs> then strap yourself in and let's go back to my childhood. And like I said, it was a really nice little point that I'd come to there before about authentic expression. And as a child, I felt really incapable of expressing authentically. This is something that I've only really unpacked and uncovered and started to understand better over the last probably year and a half, two years. And it's through some amazing people who I've received therapy and coaching from and some amazing methodologies like Dr. Gabor Mate's Compassionate Inquiry and uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz's Internal Family Systems Therapy. I got a better understanding of these two needs that we have built into us from infancy. So a need to express authentically and also this need for attachment. So attachment is essential for survival. Whenever a baby human's born, it's basically like a useless little bean, you know, I can't really do anything except for cry and roll around. So the parent has to feel attachment to the kid and the kid has to be attached to the parent because the kid needs to understand that, okay, this thing means I live and the parent just loves and wants to nurture the child. So attachment Whenever there is a situation where it's either or, attachment or like that acceptance of their self-expression, they'll always go for attachment because it's more important for survival. And I find that my life circumstances, which I get far more in detail in the book that I'm writing at the minute, led me to really repress my authentic expression to maintain the attachment relationship to my caregivers. And this is like a really, really, really common thing in society. Like everyone has this on some level, but whenever it gets a bit out of kilter or a bit exaggerated, that's when like pathology comes along and people do start to repress themselves to the point where they become like people pleasers or putting others before themselves to their own detriment. And whenever I look back at my childhood, like that was me all over. And as a kid, I just thought, well, that's the right thing to do. And, uh, and it would be reinforced as well because, you know, teachers and adults would say, oh, what a nice, polite young boy that Scott is. Very quiet though. And <laughs> yeah, that's because I was a little people pleaser trying to survive in the world. That's all I, all I knew. Those were patterns that I picked up. And just to make really clear at this stage, like that's not a judgment on my caregivers or family growing up. It's a societal thing and life circumstances are what they are. And ultimately everything that I've been through has led to this moment. And I wouldn't change a thing because I really love the person that I am now. And that includes the young little people pleaser, repressed version of me, my little child self. But that's taken some work to get to love that little kid. <laughs> so 
with that kid struggling to express and being very quiet inward, it was quite a sad little mopey child really. Fast forwarding through my teenage years, which was pretty turbulent, I moved back and forth between my mum's place and my dad's place and hated school at that time, went to an all boys school that really didn't suit me as a sensitive little sausage, <laughs> a group of wild young teenage boys, not that I was ever kind of bullied or made to feel like I was in any danger, but I just felt uncomfortable all the time. I just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin and it was a, a bad time in my life that ultimately led to not really gaining any qualifications. Uh, I was on and off antidepressants in my late teens in a difficult first relationship, first girlfriend who was very ill and became very ill through the course of our relationship. And basically found myself in a graphic design job with my brother whenever I was 19. And that seemed like a, a really good thing at the time. There was a little bit more to that. I didn't jump into the graphic design job immediately. I came to help him out, started doing some stuff on the computer for him. The role kind of developed as, as his business needed something. And I just basically learned what I needed to on the job, taught myself how to become a graphic designer, learned all the programs, and had found this socially acceptable way to just hide away from the world. So I could just hide in the office and type away at the computer and do the amount of work that would let my days pass by and go home and sleep and come back into work because my brother, with it being his business, his business partner over here, uh, worked very long hours, so I would just go and work the same long hours as them. Um, generally come in at least one of the weekend days as well and for years that was my life, passing by um, in a small windowless halogen lit office that uh, I don't want to make out to be um, melodramatically terrible but in hindsight like it really wasn't a healthy environment and again that's not to point fingers or blame anyone else. I willingly on some level took that on even if it's unconsciously you know ultimately it's always your choice and on some level even if it's a deep kind of unconscious level i was choosing to be there and, and hiding and ultimately surviving you know these um these patterns that we pick up and ways of being in the world that we develop generally are for survival mostly and you know, these are just patterns that I picked up as a very, very young child, maybe even an infant, to be a people pleaser and um, to repress my authentic expression. And I just found the perfect little niche to people please my my brother and my, uh, my boss at the time and uh, not have to express myself because I can just hide away in this small little office and, like I said, let life pass by. Unfortunately though, you can only hide from life for so long and if you don't willingly go out and engage with life, I feel like life comes to find you and that was very much the case for me. After years of those circumstances, I became very physically ill. My mental health was really bad at that time and it had been, you know, most of my life really. And my mental unwellness turned into physical illness. And I started getting inflamed joints and was suffering a lot of physical pain, a lot of uh, inflammation. And it took some time going back and forward to different doctors, but eventually I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis which let me tell you, not a barrel of laughs. <laughs> it was, uh, I can have a chuckle about it now, but uh, that condition is horrendous. And to put it in context, the severity of it was to the point where like opening a door handle or brushing your teeth 
was painful on the little joints in my fingers, like going up a single flight of stairs was sore on my knees and uh, like my sacrum, sacroiliac joint was almost always painful. So whether I was sitting or standing, I was just in constant pain from the moment I woke up. I woke up every day feeling like I'd woken into an 80 year old man's body and just the, the mental weight of that and being told that this was a chronic illness, like you've got it for keeps and the best that we're gonna do is manage it with pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, that was pretty heavy. I still held some hope though that the pharmaceutical drugs would work and eventually, about two years after I started getting symptoms, they did find a, a cocktail of pharmaceuticals that worked pretty well for me. I managed to uh, get back out and do some walking again initially and then whenever my symptoms had lessened enough I got a bicycle and started cycling and life started going in a really positive direction at this stage. I decided uh, okay amazing I'm not going to take this newfound health for granted I'm going to train and do the Maracycle Belfast to Dublin which something like 115, 120 miles, maybe a little bit less. Uh, it was over 100 miles, I remember that much, <laughs> to raise money for Arthritis Research UK. And yeah, incredible. I trained and completed the, the Mara cycle and really became like an inspiration to myself, realizing like, geez, I never thought this would be possible. And yet here I am, I've done it. Um, what else could be possible from here? I actually started at that stage then doing my graphic design work on a freelance basis and, and continued sort of to do some work for my, um, for my brother's business and some of my own but kind of got caught in this limbo place between the two, people pleasing my, my old uh, employers and, and trying to find new work. And the resultant stress of that and not really still fully stepping out into my authentic expression, feel like illness came back to define me again. And yeah, ultimately I've learned to look at this physical pain and illness as like the ultimate form of tough love. It's still like quite a, a big concept to get your head around, but ultimately like that pain coming into my life was give me the impetus, the push to, to change circumstances. And this is something that has been written extensively about by Dr. Gabor Mate. When his book When the Body Says No is incredible around this subject and if any of the stories so far has resonated with you I would highly recommend checking out When the Body Says No and learning a little bit more about whenever you're repressing your authentic expression your body will just start to break down and show up in more or less autoimmune type um, responses so whether it's inflamed joints like rheumatoid arthritis some people get inflamed gut and Crohn's disease some people get inflammation of the skin and psoriasis type conditions and there's a whole load of other conditions that uh, Dr. Gabor Mate points to with this uh, people-pleasing repressed personality type developing those kind of illnesses but I really like the way he frames it as like you know, this illness is your push to to heal. And yeah, <laughs> I didn't appreciate that at the time anyway. After I, uh, after I became ill again, my pharmaceutical drugs stopped working after the Mara cycle when I was having the stress with my, my professional life. And it was at this stage that things more or less just spiraled into complete near black hole uh, and the rock bottom point where I normally start this story where two years of pharmaceutical drugs not working and just binge eating crap food as any means to like escape in some sense or self-soothe 
um, ultimately became like a hundred pounds overweight. The excess weight that I was carrying meant that the arthritis condition was even worse. My poor little joints were trying to carry around a big heavy body. And yeah, it was just this like vicious cycle of the worse I felt, the more I'd eat, and then the condition would get worse. And uh, ultimately got to the point where I was in desperation and uh, in suicidal ideation. Now, while I never feel like I would have actually taken this step to take my own life, like who's to say one more thing mightn't have been the straw to break the camel's back? Like my life was felt horrendous uh, at that stage. Didn't want to wake up the next morning. And it was probably things like concern for my family's well-being that that meant that kept me around here and bizarrely from uh, earlier in my life maybe having been to church as a kid and uh, having some uh, strange experiences growing up as well that I get into in the book having some sense that there's more to life than like what we see in front of us and hey if I was to take my own life I don't know that the alternative of whatever if an afterlife exists is going to be any better so the way I looked at it was hell I might have another 50 or 60 years to suffer this rheumatoid arthritis max I can go through that and I can suffer it nobly <laughs> is how I felt at the time and just do my best keep trying different pharmaceutical drugs and maybe that's okay but my uh my willingness to, to just keep suffering was wearing thin. And that was the thing that initially drove me to start looking for alternatives, for stories really of other people who were in a similar situation to me at that time, but had managed to actually get their health back. And fortunately there are quite a lot of stories like that out there. One of the first ones that I'd uncovered my brother that I was working for actually was the one who recommended a documentary to me called Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead, which I often joke sounds really grim, but it's actually a really inspiring documentary about a guy who, as the title suggests, was fat, chronically ill and um, yeah, not looking uh, a very good outlook for life. And he went on a two-month juice fast. So a juice, juice fast is just going for an extended period of time without any solid food, drinking fruit and vegetable juices. He did that for 60 days and put all the symptoms of his chronic illness into remission and uh, lost a lot of weight as well, which was inspiring to me. So I felt like, well, what have I got to lose? You know, <laughs> really, uh, I can just keep taking these pharmaceutical drugs and uh, live the most miserable life imaginable to me at that stage or I can just at least try this thing and if it doesn't work then at least I can go to my grave knowing well you know what gave it my best shot so at that time in a way that I wouldn't advise anyone else to do because it was uh, reckless and potentially dangerous but I just stopped taking the pharmaceutical drugs they really, really didn't sit well with me at that time anyway. They were so strong that I was having to go for a blood test every two weeks just to check that the side effects weren't more harmful than any good that they might be doing. And I just didn't want to be taking these things my whole life. Apart from anything, one of the medications that I was taking was something called a, a biologic drug which meant that in some sense it's alive and had to be kept at a certain temperature and it made the idea of like traveling anywhere quite difficult. And that was something I thought, oh, if I get my health back, I would quite like to, to travel to different places. So whenever I looked at this Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead documentary and another one that came out at the same time called Super Juice Me, I decided, you know what, I'm gonna stop taking these pharmaceuticals, I'm going to do this two month juice fast and then just see. I can always start the drugs again, not the end of the world, but let's just see. And the Super Juice Me documentary, that felt like a little synchronicity, like a little uh, meaningful coincidence that just after I'd saw the fat, sick and nearly dead one, uh, this new one, Super Juice Me, was just being released. 
and they had like a free showing of it online because it was uh, just new and it was basically about a group of people who went and did a 28 day juice fast and this documentary came with like a plan that you could follow for the 28 days just like the guys in the documentary and those people all had different health conditions all had amazing results and I thought, you know what, I'm going to take the best of both these documentaries. I'm going to take the plan from the 28-day one, which was said to be nutritionally balanced, and put it back-to-back -back plus a few days to make it up to 60 total and copy the guy from Fat, Sick and Nearly Dead. Joe Cross, you call him. Amazing guy. And I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And that I did. I uh, stopped taking the pharmaceuticals and this was in June 2014, I started the juice fast and honestly because life was so horrendous at that stage anyway already, it's not like what I was going through really was all that much worse. It was hard and you know whenever I'd go to shop for <laughs> fruit and vegetables, the that part of the supermarket uh, was right beside the hot deli and I remember going in every day and smelling that damned cooked uh, chicken and feeling like oh man like just some warm food but knowing that like oh, I'm gonna have to go back to step one if if I gave in and you know I had to satisfy my curiosity I had to go through the 60 days just to know so I stick to it the the whole way through and not only did I fast but I also decided to do whatever physical movement I could each day as well, which initially was like a 10 minute walk down the road and back again. And I'd be like all clammy and in a lot of pain in my knees and my ankles and the little joints of my feet. But I would do it. I would do it every day. And eventually those walks got further and further. I was walking an hour around the block each day. And I think by like six or seven weeks in to the juice fast, I was back out on my bike again and like cycling, not massive different distances and was very unfit, but you know, I never actually, this point had just assumed that I would never cycle a bike again. So to feel the wind in your face under the power of your own energy, like I take that for granted now. I jump out on my bike all the time and don't even take a moment to think like, my God, like this is possible and remember where you were. <laughs> So I really do try and connect to the story in a, in a real way and uh, remember what that's really like because for a time I really did turn this into a story and became quite detached from it but this is some real shit that I lived through and really experienced and um, yeah it's important to keep those parts with me as like a, a whole and complete self. So with the juice fast going well I'm making progress. I think it was about four or five weeks into it. Um, I also wanted to take the next step, which was in my mind, <laughs> going out to the Peruvian Amazon to work with the plant medicines, ayahuasca and huachuma. I, around this time, whenever I found the Fat Sick and Nearly Dead documentary and Superduce Me was still continuing to look for other stories of people who'd um, put their chronic illnesses into remission. And there was a lot of stories about people who had been out to Peru to work with the plant medicines in the jungle there and had those kind of results. And I didn't want to just put all my eggs in one basket with the juice fast. <laughs> it was going well and I was losing weight, but probably four or five weeks in, you know, I felt a bit better, but absolutely still had inflammation in my joints. So with some support from family, um, I managed to, to book the trip to go out to Peru for January, 2015. This was again, probably now July, 2014, whenever I booked the trip. So there was like six months roughly between booking it and going there. And to basically fast forward you through those six months, I completed the juice fast, I completed doing daily physical movement, whatever I could, eventually like cycling quite far, like doing like longer distances again, maybe like up to 50 miles by the end of that year, 60 miles maybe around the peninsula where I live. And 
by the time I was getting on the plane to go to Peru, I was physically better. I'd lost probably like 80 to 90, maybe more like 90% of the extra weight that I was carrying. Uh, no physical symptoms of the rheumatoid arthritis, all within six months. Did the two month juice fast. On the other side of the juice fast, I just continued to eat as cleanly as I knew how. So I was basically eating a lot of like grilled chicken and fish and steamed vegetables and like very little else really. But after you'd gone two months without eating solid food, like that was an upgrade. <laughs> so it felt pretty easy. And I had this thing to, to work towards going to Peru. That definitely gave me the motivation to to stick to looking after my nutrition and my health because going out to Peru was a big deal. Like these plant medicines contain a compound called dimethyltryptamine, which is the strongest hallucinogen known to man. And it's not no one's going out to for to the jungle for a, a fun trip. Uh, it might be a fun um, journey, but the you know the this dimethyltryptamine is no joke, and taken in the form of uh, ayahuasca in particular, when the first plant medicine that I was treated with, there is uh, an effect from it called what they call the purge. And basically you're you're guaranteed to throw up and that's only if you're lucky you know <laughs> might might come out the other end as well at <laughs> the purge also you know can be like sweating and you know you really go through the ringer whenever you're treated with these plant medicines and um, and part of that the what's known as like a hallucinogen I don't even really feel that word's particularly appropriate but uh, the indigenous people in Peru believe that it brings you visions and uh, lets you see your inner world, which was very, very accurate to my experience. <laughs> and whenever uh, I landed in Peru, which is a whole other story in and of itself, um, a lot of fear traveling on my own after everything that I'd been through. And despite having my physical health back within six months, which is just insane, Weirdly, like my mental health was still in a terrible place. I was still really depressed, despite like achieving something more grand than my wildest dreams of getting my health back and losing all that weight and potentially having a normal life ahead of me. Uh, I was going out there physically better, but still mentally unwell. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a real journey just getting there. Went, uh, I think, at least a day and a half of constant on the move. But whenever I eventually did arrive in Iquitos, Peru, the, the big jungle city there, and made my way to the retreat center with all the other people who were going to be at the same center for three weeks, we did some work around setting intentions for what you wanted to get from the medicine experience and mine was very much just solidifying and embodying this new physical health I wanted to lock in whatever had happened to me the minor, I was going to say minor miracle but really the miracle of getting my health back when I told was told that would not be the case getting off all my pharmaceutical drugs I just wanted that to persist and I set that intention and on the night of the first ceremony we were in this circular wooden hut called uh, Maloka and uh, we all sat around the edge of it on our mats and came up one by one to the shaman after a first bit of the ceremony with uh, the shaman singing and, and blowing smoke onto the crown of our heads one by one and then we'd go up individually. He would look you in the eye and decide how much medicine that you were going to drink pour it into a cup and down the hatch. <laughs> Let me tell you <laughs> that uh, that drink was uh, what I later came to describe as tasting like fire and dirt. It was pretty grim, but I managed to get it down. Uh, went to sit back on my mat knowing that uh, there would be this, what I was told was like a hallucinatory effect to come from it. And the guidance we were given was just to like sit up straight, stay um, as much as possible in a meditative mind state. 
and see what comes for you. And I didn't know what to expect. I'd never taken any hallucinogen in my life up until that point. The only drugs that I'd taken were alcohol, uh, I'd smoked nicotine, uh, I'd smoked weed a couple of times and just felt kind of ill and didn't really enjoy it. Um, but none of those are hallucinogens, um, which is in the family of things like psilocybin or magic mushrooms as they're called, or lysergic acid, uh, LSD. It's in the same sort of family as that, so no prior experience <laughs> jumping in two feet first at the deep end with the strongest hallucinogen known to man, DMT, in the form of ayahuasca. And let's see what happens. <laughs> and, uh, maybe expecting some like physical tingling sensations, particularly around my joints, and, and maybe to see like some beautiful like kaleidoscopic colors. You know, maybe that's some of the stuff that I'd read about before and uh, it was absolutely nothing like that in the slightest. It was, <laughs> to say it was a trip, <laughs> it was quite literal, but um, yeah, it was very much that. All this stuff started coming to me about uh, my experiences with women in my life in the past and um, about relationship with my mom and with female teachers and the fact that you know I didn't have any sisters or spend really any time with female cousins or female family that way or around my own age. By the time I got to the age where I was like interested in spending time with, with girls, uh, I was moving into an all boys school at the age of just turning 12. And so I didn't have any female friends or you know female relationships either in my teenage years. Um, maybe a couple through um, like a church group that I went to um, in my early teens, but my development around women was very, very stunted to the point where I actually didn't even really think of women as like the same as me. It was like women are just this different thing. And uh, I couldn't relate, couldn't really understand and uh, there would be much deeper lessons in that to come many, many years afterwards. And this is one of the most incredible things about the plant medicine ayahuasca. You know, it, it taught me a lot about my relationships to different women in that night on that ceremony. But I think it was about five or six years later, whenever I was uh, doing some personal coaching and a lot of meditation at the time, realized that this lesson wasn't just about my relation to women, it was about relation to the feminine aspect of myself. Like I'm naturally a pretty soft, gentle, kind person and these are not qualities that are normally thought of as like being particularly macho or manly or no dude wants to be described as like, oh he's so gentle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I want to be I want to be a badass, you know, but uh, hey, that's, you got to take the cards you're dealt with. And now I don't see it in the same judgmental way. I'm quite cool with the fact that like I've got, you know, this strong feminine side as well and that that's okay. And <laughs> that it wasn't okay for me when I was growing up. And, you know, I don't know how much of that it was from the environment of you know, all boys school or just society in general, because I think that um, feminine qualities aren't generally respected in the same way as masculine qualities. But yeah, <laughs> it took many years to, to get to, to that understanding. In that night of the first ceremony, it was more just about like the relations I had with women going back through my life and and how I probably hadn't always acted admirably and let me see it in a really compassionate way where I didn't have any self-judgment or didn't beat myself up about it and interestingly you know I came to understand that uh, this plant medicine ayahuasca is known by the indigenous people of Peru as a, a female plant spirit. They, they call it mother ayahuasca. And 
you know, perhaps I had some healing to do around the feminine before uh, any further healing could be done by that medicine. And yeah, I had five ayahuasca ceremonies in 10 days and then went on to do three huachuma ceremonies, which is a different kind of plant medicine and very different to ayahuasca instead of taking the medicine and sitting on a mat and seeing what comes to you uh, being very internal huachuma was very external we would drink the medicine early in the morning and then go out on an adventure into the forest <laughs> and like go and meet the tribes and yeah there's a lot of incredible stories that i'd love to go into in more detail on this podcast but uh, I'm writing a book on it at the minute and if I was to go into every little part of the story in this podcast it would just be like an ad-libbed version audio book that you know it's not going to be done as well as it is, uh, is as it is in the book so I'm going to need to ask for your patience <laughs> to, uh, to get some of those little stories about the the exciting adventures out in the jungle being treated with Huachuma and uh, ultimately though the the big thing that i took from the huachuma experiences was that i'd been in receipt of something incredible that i'd got my health back from a point where i was told that i wouldn't and that it was now my responsibility to go and help other people in the way that i'd received help from people like joe cross in the the fat sick and dead fat sick and nearly dead documentary and on the way out of Peru like one of the last things that um, the shaman the North American shaman Don Howard Lawler he said to me go and be the medicine in the world and at that time I didn't really know what he meant but uh, I've come to understand in the years that followed that what he meant was the conclusion I'd come to uh, in the ayahuasca or in the Huachuma ceremonies that it was my responsibility to go and help others that maybe can't go all the way to Peru and, and work with the plant medicines and, and that maybe isn't the right path for them because I don't actually think it's an essential for everyone at all in the slightest because it's very very intense <laughs> so I had these signs that I should go back home and help other people and um, decided one of the first things whenever I got home was to go and do a health coaching qualification. There was uh, an amazing guy at the retreat center in Peru that I spent three weeks with, Stian, who was a, a Czech uh, coach. He's a, a certified coach with Paul Czech, an amazing American um, health specialist and I felt like okay I'm gonna go and do this check qualification as well and do some health coaching like I got my health back I can learn a little bit more from this check certification and use what I learned there to help others I went over to England to study for that and found it extraordinarily challenging um, given that I didn't actually have like much of a background or uh, understanding of um, like physiology or anything at that stage really and still came away though with a piece of paper saying you're a health coach <laughs> and uh, just sat with that and like okay well now I what <laughs> continued to sit with that for a long time you know whenever I came home and wanted to help people it was maybe uh, getting a little bit ahead of myself oh, that's uh yeah, maybe getting a lot ahead of myself but that was my path and uh, I had a lot of adjusting to do to normal life again you know given that I'd really spent my whole life hiding from the world and not even knowing who I really was and then out in Peru like getting this deep sense of like oh these are my people like I found my people the people who went to the retreat center those kind of people who you know were willing to go the extra mile to, to on the path to to learn about themselves and heal uh, but also really like look after and support each other and basically feel like I was with 20 of my best friends at that retreat center for three weeks 
even though I'd never met them beforehand. And yeah, that was uh, <laughs> that was incredible. And I wanted to find that at home as well. <clears throat> it wasn't just about like helping other people, but it was finding like a, a community of uh, of like-minded others. So these were big aspirations, and uh, you know I was still still very early on in my healing journey. And around this time, I'd uh, managed to get into a relationship. I met a woman, an incredible woman, who had actually just arrived in Northern Ireland um, weeks after I got back home from Peru. And things moved forward very quickly there. And you know, we were living together within about six months. And um, I was just very, very invested in that. And probably in a time like receiving this affection and um, things that I hadn't really received in my adult life before and yeah it was it was a lot and I learned a lot and even though that woman would not be the right person for me now she was absolutely the right person for me in that time and over the three years that we spent together but over that first year that we were together anyway I just went back to doing some graphic design stuff and I was still had my intentions but I wasn't really making any forward movement on them and helping others or, or finding a bigger community. Um, I was still exploring different alternative health methodologies because that had brought so much to my life and I was still doing really well health-wise and discovered the Wim Hof method which for anyone who doesn't know is a methodology that involves training with cold water uh, with breath work and mindset to improve general health or sporting performance and i was just really inspired by wim the guy who the method's named after wim hof I watched him on a couple of documentaries and on a couple of podcasts and decided right this could be the thing that I learn to make sure that my health stays in the good order that it does. Because bear in mind, this is only like 18 months after I was at my rock bottom point. The six months of rapid weight loss and put my symptoms into remission a year back from Peru and that life-changing experience and uh, discovered the Wim Hof method. And I probably figured something like, you know what, if my symptoms ever come back, this thing might actually, you know, help me get my health back without having to do another two month juice fast or fly all the way back to Peru. And I went for it. There was a 10 week online course and I decided that I was going to learn this purely for myself. And I had no idea exactly what that was gonna develop into. And what that was going to develop into, you're going to find out in episode two of the Causeway Living podcast. <laughs> I really wanted these uh, podcasts to be less than an hour long. And as we're recording here, I uh, noticed that there's still a lot of story to go. Easily enough to fill another, uh, another full episode. So I'm going to say thank you for listening to episode one. Check back next week for episode two, where you're gonna get the continuation of the story where I learn about the Wim Hof Method and go to become a Wim Hof Method certified instructor, train with Wim Hof himself. That was pretty crazy meeting the man after like spending 10 weeks of like staring at him online and, and doing his method. And eventually developing Causeway Living, the organization that I created to, to help others and, and help share the Wim Hof Method and, and what I'd learned from my Czech certification, everything that happened on the other side of that, starting my book and my own continued healing journey, the story of Dash and Splash, my running and sea swimming group that started out with like 15 people on week one and ended up with well thousands of people online, over a couple of thousand online, but you know, the biggest one, hundreds of people lined up on the beach and me yelling at them, okay, breathe with me, fully in, let it go. And then marching out and 
like some mysterious Pied Piper having hundreds of people follow me into the freezing sea. So you've got all those cool stories to look forward to next week. Again, thank you for taking the time to have a listen to this. Do drop me like as much feedback as, uh, as you're willing to. This is episode one. I'm gonna continue learning. And as the weeks go on, I really hope to improve the setup. So the quality of the microphones and the recording equipment. But in order to do that, I'm probably gonna need your support as well. <laughs> because I never want to have to have an advertisement on this podcast. I don't want to have anything that I'm gonna share affected by me thinking, oh, is my sponsor gonna approve for this? You know, this is all about authentic self-expression for me. And if you want to encourage and support that authentic self-expression, I want you to go to causewayliving.com forward slash podcast. And there's going to be some options on there for people who do want to really get involved with this and either make a small one-off donation or ideally a recurring donation. There's going to be some options there to do that. And we're just going to keep the stories going. So I'm going to finish probably my personal story by next week. And I'm going to invite other interesting people on to share their stories. We're going to get a little bit more in episode two about the kind of intention behind the podcast in general. And there's going to be a lot of solo episodes also where it's not just story, but what I'm going through in the present moment, my continued healing journey, because that's something that I realized is very interesting. <laughs> I've been you know, putting out regular blog posts and... I send regular long written reports to uh, Sue, the, Sue Galvin, the therapist that I'm working with, amazing woman. And every time I write out these reports, like, damn, this is a really interesting ongoing experience. <laughs> and uh, Sue seems very engaged in it. And, you know, I've got to say a, a big thank you to her as well, because actually without her, I don't think I'd be recording this podcast uh, today because you know, it's with this healing work that I've been encouraged, not just from Sue, but within myself to to just share more openly and more regularly, rather than just putting all my time into the book as it stands, where people aren't getting to hear that ongoing. And the book's still coming, but this is... This is a way for me to express and share and hopefully help other people in the meantime while I'm working on the book. And if you want to support that again, go to causewayliving.com slash podcast and you can be a part of making this even better going forward, better sound quality. Leave, I'll leave a, a suggestion box on there as well if there's anything that you feel could help improve the podcast. If you want to recommend any guests for future weeks, please do that uh, or just drop a DM or a message on any of the Causeway Living social media platforms. I'll pick that up and I'll see you next week for part two of my personal story and episode two of the Causeway Living podcast. See you next week. <laughs>